And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. Welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today. Yes, continuing on in the week in apologetics, and uh, we're going to continue with strong programming today because we're going to have a good friend, Ken Litchfield, come on the show. Ken, as you know, has been an apologist. Again, you know, I love having uh, information from apologists who are in the trenches you know, rubbing elbows with people, trying out arguments, getting responses, refining arguments. I, for me, that's kind of the gold standard uh, for learning how to share, defend the faith, because why make the same mistakes? You know, we could all pull our uh, experiences together and uh, refine our arguments and hopefully make the message for Christ and his church as clear as possible for those outside the church. So Ken Litchfield is coming on. As you know, Ken is one of those guys in the trenches, and he he wrote a fantastic book, How Old Is Your Church?, which is a collection of essays, apologetics essays. And, um, yeah, so he's going to be coming up on the other side of the break, and we're going to continue our series on answering common objections. As you know, uh, he does a lot of social media, online uh, apologetics, also through emails as well. And uh, he's talked to separate, or he's talked to our, our brethren across the sea, uh, in different countries. And uh, like I said, he's he's heard all sorts of objections. In fact, on the show, uh, he's brought up uh, some objections that are um, given in in Pakistan for example. And they're really interesting questions because they're not the run-of-the-mill questions that perhaps you would hear here in America or on the continent. Uh, So cool stuff, really cool stuff. So he's coming up on the other side of the break, on this side of the break. We're going to have our Finding the Fallacy. We're going to meet an early church father. And today's Finding the Fallacy, by the way, is the Incomplete Comparison Fallacy. And we're also going to meet early church father, this early church father, I would guarantee, even for those who, you know, they know apologetics very well, I'd almost guarantee you've never heard of this early church father. And that is Paulus Orsius. Paulus Orsius, yes. In fact, I probably would never know about him had I not done this series. And it's based on Jurgen's faith, early fathers, and just going individually through him. It's like, hey, we discovered this early church father. So we'll talk about. Uh, Paulus Orsius in a little bit. But before we do that, I want to welcome all of you to the show, getting with our live stream audience and also all of you who are listening on radio around the country and also via podcast around the world, either through our handy dandy phone app or through our flagship website, which is virginmostpowerfulradio.org. And uh, that's the place to go, folks. Get the latest and greatest from Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Uh, just go there. And by the way, that's also where you can access this show and you can share it with friends. I talk about this all the time. Man, we are so blessed. And and we're going to be held accountable for this too. Is, are you sharing the faith? Are you spreading the word about Jesus? Because quite frankly, civilization is dying 
to know the truth about Christ and the truth about our Creator. And uh, so it's incumbent upon all of us to be able to give a, ho- a reason for the hope that's in us. And one way you can do that without any studying or anything like that is sharing good programs. And nowadays, all you have to do is just click a mouse and bam, you got programs you can share with people. So maybe we're going to handle an objection or two that you've run across with an individual and, and you love the response. Then I highly encourage you to Go and uh, go on virginmostpowerfulradio.org, click on Hands-On Apologetics. And for this program, share it with a friend. Tell them about it. Or just, you know, even if you just know people who love defending the faith, love learning about the faith, again, you know, tell them about it. Direct them our way. And that helps our ministry. It helps our outreach. And most of all, it helps get this information out in the trenches where people need it. All right. So... Uh, also, I got to tell you about the Dojo Mailbox. Every episode, I tell you about this. The way to get a hold of me is officially at questions at handsonapologetics.com. That is the official Dojo Mailbox, and I do answer all the email. Not always on time, but I do answer them. And uh, by the way, if you know anybody who's doing a bang-up job on social media, explaining the faith, sharing the faith, and you think they'd make a great guest for Hands-On Apologetics, I encourage you, please send me an email. Also, give me some contact info, and especially if you can, include a link to their material so I can check it out myself. And, uh, you know, if they're dojo quality, we will send them an invite. And if our schedules coincide, we'll have them on the show for sure. And uh, we've already had a few guests that came through your suggestions. So please keep them coming. Uh, I really appreciate it. All right. All right, let's go to the finding of the fallacy. Today he's finding the fallacy, like I said, it's the incomplete comparison fallacy. And uh, this is um, uh, an incomplete uh, comparison is an incomplete assertion that cannot possibly be refuted. And it's used a lot in advertising. Uh, Another name for it, if I can remember, I believe it is... uh, uh, misuse of relative terms. I believe that's another name for this particular fallacy. Basically, uh, there are certain terms that are comparative, right? For example, tall, short, big, small, better, worse, and you could go on and on, right? These are terms that describe uh, the relationship between one thing and another. Well, if you don't have the other thing to be compared to, the comparison, the word, is totally meaningless. And uh, so you could say that hands-on apologetics is 100% better. That's great. In fact, that's quite attractive. But better than what? (laughs) Is is it better than, uh, you know, um, eating a a bowl full of nails? Well, then being 100% better isn't that much better is it uh so same thing's true you know big small uh, all these comparative terms need something to be compared to otherwise they simply have no meaning and uh we know the the cousin to this like i often say informal fallacies often have a um uh, a cousin uh propaganda technique and the propaganda technique that's cousin to this is glittering generalities 
you know, there's certain things that are attractive to us, like better, um, uh, or you can even use terms like uh, patriotic or something like that. Um, so uh, there is a propaganda technique that kind of uses this uh, incomplete comparison. This was really popular in advertising when I was a young kid. You'd always see claims about how a product is better or cheaper or uh, contains more or something. But you'd never actually find out what they're comparing it to. And then there was a change in advertising law that required advertisers to um, actually stipulate what it's being compared to. So you'll always see an asterisk. Uh, or, you know, I might you might run into something that actually breaks the law. But generally speaking, here in America... There will be an asterisk where they make an assertion. You'll see the asterisk, and you look it up, and it'll tell you what it's been compared to or what study it's based on or something like that. Um, so uh, so they try to hide what it's being compared to and advertise the headline you know, to attract people to buy it. And that basically is the finding of the fallacy for today, the incomplete comparison fallacy. All right, let's go to meet our early church father for today, who is Paulus Orsius. Uh, like I said, not exactly a household name, not even for people who are familiar with ap uh, apologetics or even maybe early church fathers. Orsius is generally accounted as a Spanish priest, uh, though, in fact, his birthplace is most likely to have been in Braca or Braga in Portugal, uh, fleeing from the Vandals. He came in 414 AD to Hippo, which is, of course, the see of St. Augustine, and presented to St. Augustine his commentary on the errors of Priscillianist and the Originist. He asked Augustine to use this outline of errors in writing a major refutation. Uh, Augustine's response was his uh, to Orsius the Presbyter against Priscillianist and Originist in one book. Uh, so uh, our early church father actually provokes another early church father, a great early church father, St. Augustine, doctor of the church, to actually make a work, an apologetic work. Uh, Augustine uh, was much taken by the abilities of Orsius and sent him to Bethlehem in 415 AD to consult with another early church father, St. Jerome, on the question of the origin of the soul. And likewise, to warn Jerome about Pelagius, who had uh, lately gone to Palestine. At Bethlehem in the same year, Orsius wrote his uh, apolog uh, book, Apologeticus. And uh, Orsius uh, had been there less than a year in Palestine when he uh, left, intending to return to Spain, arriving at the uh, island of Minicora. And the reports of war and barbarian atrocities in Spain frightened him off. And instead, he went back to Hippo and St. Augustine. At Hippo, he wrote another, uh, probably his best-known work, which is a history against the pagans in seven books. <coughs> After 418 AD, we hear of him no more. Whether he died in Africa or he did finally return to Spain, nobody knows. And that is our early church father for today, Paulus Orsius. And I hear the music coming up. That means we're going to take a short break. But coming up on the other side of the break, we're going to have Master Apologist Ken Litchfield join us. And we're going to tackle some common objections. So stay tuned, everybody.
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, in Hands-On Apologetics and Answering Questions. That is part of being a defender, explainer of the faith. And so we need to be sharp on answering common objections and also some not-so-common objections. And to help us do that, we have our good friend, Master Apologist Ken Litchfield with us. Ken, of course, is a lifelong Catholic and a member of Holy Family Parish in Memphis, Michigan. Serves as Grand Knight for the All Saints Memphis Knights of Columbus Council. And after reading Left Behind books, he started studying the Catholic faith more deeply. He's answered questions on Catholic Answers Colin Show. He serves as a moderator and contributor to the Bible Christian Society Facebook page. He also contributes to many other uh, uh, outlets as well. And he also is the author of How Old Is Your Church, which is a collection of 25 short essays from a much larger collection of essays defending and sharing the faith and Ken Litchfield, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Oh, I think you're muted, Ken. Yeah, you might want to check your mic. Uh, nope, I still can't hear you, Ken. Uh, yeah, nope, can't hear you. Yeah, that's, uh, well, you know, this is <laughs> par for the course. Uh, yeah, I, uh, you might want to check to see if you got the right mic selected or something like that. Um, but anyway, um, I'll finish my introduction. Just keep trying to get sort out the mic issue. Uh, as you know, Ken uh, is uh, very active on social media. In fact, he's been helping a group of Christians in Pakistan uh, share the Catholic faith with all sorts of people. Uh, and you can imagine it's a different mix of, of people and objections than what you would typically find here in the United States. So uh, we've been doing this series on answering common objections uh, for a while. And uh, the cool thing is some of these objections aren't necessarily very common here. Uh, Ken, are you with us? Nope, I still can't hear you, Ken. Boy, um, having something, uh, some problems with the mic. Um, yeah, I don't know why. Um, yeah, I guess you'll just have to maybe sort it out or perhaps we can... Okay, well, yeah, so we're going to see if whether we can uh, sort it out. It might be on our end, or it could be on his end. So, you know, this is this is part of the world we live in. Like I said, I was just singing the praises of technology. And uh, you know what? It uh, definitely is uh, not, um, you know, there are thorns amongst the roses, I guess. And uh, for those who do a lot of Zoom meetings and uh, apologetics over social media, you know that one of the trickiest things is the audio. Uh, for some reason, video seems to come through fine. It's always the audio that's the problem. Um, so uh, so we're working out some technical issues with Ken Litchfield. Let me tell you a little bit about his book, How Old Is Your Church? Of course, I love that question because uh, there are actually T-shirts out there that you could go and just wear and ask. It says in bold you know, how old is your church? And then on the back, it, it lists all the different denominations and the year they started. Um, so, and at the very bottom, of course, you have the Catholic Church, 33 AD. Uh, but anyway, uh, besides the cool title, uh, the book is, like I said, 
very much uh, simple, easy to understand, and practical responses and treatments of different topics. So there's 25 topics that are covered in Ken's book. And uh, I, I love it because maybe you're in a parish who uh, maybe there's some members there that they're going through books and they, they're looking for a new book to study. Maybe it's a Bible study. Maybe it's just a few interested people that uh, they want to share their faith, but they don't know how. I would recommend uh, pick up Ken Litchfield's book, How Old Is Your Church? And I think that's a great starting place. You could just work through the issues. And the best thing about with Ken Litchfield is that you could shoot him an email if you ever have any questions or comments. And chances are, or even who knows what, maybe even uh, a set up a Skype meeting. And uh, Ken can actually help you out with that. So I, I highly recommend that you pick it up. It's available. I, I believe it's available on Amazon. So just type in how old is your church. You'll see Ken Litchfield's uh, book come up. And for those who have so uh, are watching live stream, uh, you'll notice in the background he has a picture of Okay. Can you hear me now? His book. Ah, I hear you, Ken. Ah, great. I, all right. Eureka. We found it. <laughs> So, yeah, so how old is your church, Ken? Oh, well, my church is like 2,000 years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so is mine. <laughs> yeah, while we were working out the, the audio problems, I was just telling people how great the book is. And, it, and I think it's a fantastic book uh, for small groups and churches that maybe want to dip their toe into apologetics because they can just work through your different articles and if they have any trouble, they can reach you probably by email. Right. My email is at the end of the book. So if you get all the way through all 100 pages, which isn't that much, really. Yeah, right. <laughs> the email's at the end, and you can contact me. And uh, I'll be happy to answer any questions. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, I have my 250-plus essay apologetic package, and I'll send that. That's right. And there's more. You know, I always love those old commercials, you know, with the Ginzu knives and the bamboo steamers. And if you order right now, well, you know what? With Ken's book, uh, okay. you get the book, but you can also I'm email him. some get even feedback more. from the uh, control room right now. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, Richard, I think there's a live mic in the studio. Uh, so if you pick up the book, email Ken. Uh, he'll send you even more essays. And uh, that'll be fantastic. So, uh, yeah, I'll see what I can do on this end, um, uh, Ken. But maybe if we, we could try to speak over it. Um, so, anyway, um, so how are things in Memphis, Michigan? Are you there? Okay. Um, Ken, can you say something? Okay. Okay. Can you hear me, Gary? I, I can hear you now. Okay. <laughs> Yikes. All right. So uh, besides technical problems, how are things in uh, Memphis, Michigan? Um, I have the audio from the control room coming through loud and clear, but not you. Oh, oh that's weird. Okay. Uh, well... Uh, actually, that's probably a bonus, Ken, because <laughs> chances are that whatever the discussion is, is probably a lot more intelligible than anything I would ask you on this end. 
Uh, Richard, I don't know if you heard that, but uh, I guess Ken's kind of – okay, okay. So the engineer's okay. working on it. Oh, boy. Okay, so – Like coming uh, through for you well? Yeah, I can hear you perfect. So why don't you just start with the objections? Okay. So the first objection uh, I have here is from a guy named Anthony on Facebook. And uh, I was I wrote something about how the first Christians were saved in Acts chapter 2. And then he responded with, uh, well, how could the first Christians be saved in Acts chapter 2 if Peter didn't mention the gospel that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? And he's starting with the idea that, you know, Peter had the New Testament in his hands when he was preaching, you know, 10 days after Jesus ascended into heaven, which is a problem that, you know, Protestants often start with. But so let's read, I'll read the First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, the first few verses that um, many Protestants say this is the gospel that saves. So Paul writes, now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you which you in turn received, in which you also also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I had handed on to you of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to twelve. So I kind of tuned in on verse number two. Okay. And um, when a Protestant, one of our Protestant brothers and sisters, you know, refers us to this gospel that saves in First Corinthians chapter five, we can agree with them that if a person comes to believe this brief version of the gospel that Paul proposes here, that they can be saved. You know, and if they die right after that, they're heading for heaven. But if we tune in on verse number two, it is very important because it says here, Paul is saying to the Christians that they are being saved, which tells us that salvation is an ongoing process for them. It's not like they're saved one and done and they're good to go. Right. Yeah. And since this is an action of being saved, you know, again, this is, you know, kind of a work. It's not a, you know, God's grace, you know, zapped you and you're good to go forever. It's not quite like that. It's a process that is occurring. They're being saved. Right. Uh, And then the second half of that verse, Paul tells them, that they have to hold firmly to the message proclaimed to them. So, again, this is something that they have to do. I'm telling you how to be saved. This is what you got to do to live the life of a Christian. So what you do after you're saved, you know, is important. If you go back to sin, you're not going to be saved anymore. And then he ends verse 2 with a warning that if, they fall away from their belief, then they will. Their belief will be in vain, showing that their salvation could be lost. So, in this one little verse, Paul tells us that 
salvation is an ongoing process that you have to hold firmly to the faith. And if you don't hold firmly to the faith, you won't be saved anymore. All in one verse. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh... so from this we understand that you know faith is an ongoing process that begins at one point in time. Um, and we go back to Matthew chapter twenty-eight, and when Jesus ascends into heaven, he doesn't leave behind the New Testament for the apostles to preach from. He had taught them you know, for three years, and then he tells them to go out and teach the world and baptize. So, in Acts chapter two just 10 days after Jesus' ascension. So it's not like 10 years where Peter forgot what Jesus told him to do. It's just 10 days. And Peter goes out and preaches to the Jews. And when the Jews ask Peter, what must we do to be saved? Peter tells them, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you and your children. And 3,000 are added to the church that day. Yeah, very good. Okay, I hear the music coming up. We're chatting with Ken Litchfield, answering common objections. So next, I got a more to about, come right uh, after this. What Ted Lou, the congressman, said after the break. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. We're chatting with Ken Litchfield, answering common objections. Okay, let's give it a shot. Ken, can you hear me? I can hear you. I, I can hear you. All right. <laughs> We're in business, my friend. Richard, us all together. <laughs> That's right. Thank you, Richard, for your hard work, and we truly appreciate it. All right. So, uh, yeah, so this uh, that uh, salvation, you always have to... Remember that people have different meanings behind the word saved. So when they ask a question like, how can somebody be saved at this point in Scripture before that point? Well, that's when you have to break it down and show that, you know, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Now, I heard, you know, right at the end of this, the segment, you said you wanted to share something else. You kind of left a cliffhanger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of my uh, friends sent me an email about uh, something that Congressman Ted Lieu from California said, well, sort of didn't say, in the uh, um, the Capitol in Congress. And, uh, you know, basically it was what about, what did Jesus say about homosexuality? You know, since this is uh, the, the month that we Catholics celebrate the sacred heart of Jesus, but the pagans, they celebrate uh, Pride Month, Gay Pride Month. Um, and anyway, Ted's Lou, you know, his point was that Jesus said never said anything about homosexuality. However, you know, Jesus and the apostles were Jews, and the first converts were Jews. So they already knew their Old Testament. And back in Leviticus, you know, chapter 18, it says, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, because that is detestable. And do not have sexual relations with an animal or defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves. 
in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. So these um, bad practices of homosexuality and bestiality were practiced by the pagan nations. And God makes it very clear to the Jews that this is not something you're supposed to do. In, in Leviticus chapter 20, it says, if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. So God makes it pretty clear in the book of Leviticus that homosexual activity is wrong. Um, and then in Romans chapter 1, Paul writes, you know, so this tells us that the first Christians, you know, well, the Christians also taught the same thing. In Romans chapter 1, starting around verse 26, Paul writes, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations with unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned their natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for this error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what they ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. And at, uh, toward the end of chapter 1, it write, Paul writes, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of others who practice them. So in the Catholic Church, we do not teach that, you know, homosexuals need to be put to death. They die spiritually when they reject God's plan for sex. And if a person has same-sex attraction, um, we don't ask them to um, deny their feelings, but we do require them to not act on their feelings just like an alcoholic might have a desire to drink alcohol excessively, we expect them to not drink alcohol excessively and become drunk. Or if you, you know, if you have a desire to rob a bank, you don't go out and rob the bank. So just because you have a feeling towards something doesn't mean you have to act on that feeling. We're supposed to do what we're, we're supposed to live as Jesus calls us to live not follow our every passion for whatever we want to do. Yeah, 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 very good. Um, yeah, Ken, I mean, I think uh, that probably deserves an email to the congressman uh, that, that give them the news that the Jews followed the Old Testament. That's uh, probably something he never thought about before. <laughs> right. <laughs> that Jesus I mean, followed the law, yeah. Yeah. Technically, he's right that Jesus didn't specifically, you know, preach against homosexual activity, at least not recorded in the Bible. Um, and, of course, the Bible tells us that Jesus taught many other things that are not recorded here. So, you know, yeah, maybe right. Jesus did talk about it. 
and we just don't have it written down. That's true. Yeah, there, that's a great point, especially when you have Paul who does uh, touch on the subject. So, you know, where did he get this idea that Christianity has adopted that moral norm? And he must have got it from the apostles that he conferred with, right? Right. Yeah. And, of course, the Jewish law, you know. But this does, that Paul's writing does confirm for us that, um, you know, the first Christians and Christians now are required to keep the same law that the Jews kept regarding homosexuality. Um, it's pretty clear, you know. Right. People try to get around it, but, you know, it's right there. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I guess you have to be a congressman from California to miss that subtle point, you know. <laughs> Jesus was Jewish. Oh, right. right. Well, hey, uh, yeah, okay, so that that's interesting. Uh <laughs> Uh, uh, there's an objection right off the, f the front page. I don't even know if it would be front page uh, material, to tell you the truth, with all the craziness around. Okay, so yeah. uh, what do you have next for a, a common objection? Okay, so this one comes from my friend Nasamwa, or Nam, Amaswa, Isaac, in Africa. Okay. Um, and he asked, you know, were there some heretics in the early church who were severely punished under the authority of, of the Catholic Church? And he's been seeing a lot of anti-Catholic posts criticizing this issue that the Catholic Church punished early heretics. And, <laughs> uh, you know, from the very beginning, we have uh, what we would call heretics in the church. <laughs> right. Uh, so... We have to define first what we want to consider the early church. Um, and the earliest thing that we could perhaps refer to would be in Acts chapter 15, we have the Council of Jerusalem. And we have to remember that back then the Jewish Christians were always trying to impose the Jewish works of the law on the Gentile Christians, which would have included circumcision. So they have the Council of Jerusalem. And there's a lot of arguing back and forth. And then Peter, you know, gets up and explains that, you know, he saw how um, Cornelius's, Cornelius received the Holy Spirit without becoming a Jew. And so he realized then, or understood then, that, you know, you don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. Gentiles can also receive the Holy Spirit. So the Council of Jerusalem, they made, gave a decree binding on the whole church that you don't have to follow all the Jewish ceremonial and kosher laws. You just have to keep the moral law. And they sent this written decree out with certain representatives to the whole church, and they read it to them. They didn't, you know, make, you know, 5,000 copies for them to hand out to everybody because they would all have to be handwritten. They didn't have a Xerox machine back then. And we have to remember that when we're reading Paul's writings, he's usually writing to a church that has Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And the Jew Jewish Christians are still trying to impose the works of the law on the Gentile Christians. So when Paul is telling you, you are not saved by works, he's talking about the Jewish works of the law that don't save you. And then even in John's writings in uh, 
3 John, he writes that uh, one of the churches that he founded, the guy who's running that church now, won't let him go there and preach because this guy already has new ideas on how Christianity is supposed to be practiced. So the Apostle John can't even preach in the church or that he founded. And then before Christianity was made legal in 311 AD, there were many different people that taught different versions of Christianity. Uh, we have Irenaeus' book, um, Against Heresies, written around 180 AD, and in there he lists, you know, a sort of different heresies about, you know, what different Christians were teaching in Christianity at that time, and he explains that, you know, this is wrong because of this, this is wrong because of that, and uh, he says that, you know, if somebody wants to teach something in the church, they need to be able to trace that teaching back to an apostle, and he says, if you have any doubts, all you have to do is check with the church in Rome, because they have the teaching of Peter and Paul there. So as early as 180 AD, Irenaeus is directing people to the church in Rome. He doesn't direct them to the church in Jerusalem or Antioch or Constantinople, because Constantinople hadn't even been being built by then. Hmm. And then later on in uh, at the First Ecumenical Council uh, in Nicaea, 325 AD, uh, we have the priest Arius preaching that Jesus is not co-eternal with the Father, and that is also determined as a heresy. So and we'll actually, move I hear on the music that. coming up. Yeah, yeah I hear the music coming up. Why don't we just hit pause there, and you can continue on the other side. We're chatting with Ken Litchfield, the author of the book, How Old Is Your Church? More to come right after this. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, at Hands-On Apologetics. And uh, we are chatting with Ken Litchfield. And uh, unfortunately, Ken, you know, the uh, music starts sneaking up on you uh, right when you're talking about Arius. And how he was uh, condemned as a heretic. So why don't you just pick it up right there? Right. So um, in the early 300s, there was a priest named Arius who was preaching that Jesus was not co-eternal with the Father. And uh, the Nicene Creed that we have now, um, the basis of it was started in at this Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., and the creed made it clear that uh, Jesus is co-eternal with the Father, God from God and light from light. Um, and since we just celebrated the Feast of the Trinity this past Sunday, you know, this is an important thing, you know, for us to understand so that we can help explain the Trinity to, another, to others. Uh, because some people talk about how you know, Jesus was begotten of the Father, but how can Jesus be begotten of the Father and be co-eternal with the Father? And that is, you know, like hard for us to understand, but um, it is described for us in the Creed where Jesus is God from God, light from light, 
true God from true God. So he's the same God from the Father. And if you have the mindset of the people back then where a king would have a son who would be a prince, wherever the prince goes, he goes with the authority of the father. It would be just like having the father, the king, there at the same time. So if we understand how a king and a prince, their roles work, then it makes it easier for us to understand how God the Father and Jesus are the same person because they have the same role in a kingdom. So when we use, when we understand it that way, it's easier for us to understand how Jesus and God the Father are both the same God. Uh, the Trinity, of course, is outside of our understanding, you know, how can God be three persons in one? But um, that's one way to help us understand a little bit on God's plan for the Trinity. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't go against logic. It goes beyond logic. Exactly. Of course, there's no contradiction because we don't say God is three persons in one person. We say God is three persons in one nature. So even just the definition of the Trinity, there is no you know, there's nothing irrational about it, but it is supernatural, obviously. Right. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. And so even after, go ahead. No, go, go right ahead. Okay. So even after the Council of 325 AD, you know, there's always people coming up with new ideas. Um, and there was a, a guy named Pelagius who taught that, you know, we could save ourselves uh, we just have to follow Jesus' example. And St. Augustine, you know, refuted this by explaining that, you know, we are saved by God's grace, not just by following Jesus' example. Uh, and a lot of Protestants will point to St. Augustine and say, yep, he's our guy, we're saved by grace. <laughs> but St. Augustine never said that we're saved by grace alone, which is what those Protestants teach. Uh, and so, yes, we are saved by God's grace, but then we have to live, do the works that Jesus calls us to do. So that works perfectly fine with the whole New Testament and what Jesus taught, um, because you won't find any verse in the New Testament that says we're saved by grace alone. It just says that we're saved by grace. And we Catholics can completely agree with we are saved by God's grace, but not grace alone. Another group that uh, Augustine refuted back then was the Montanists. And they insisted that if a clergy person is in a state of sin, then the, the sacraments that they administer are no longer valid. But the problem was, it's like we do not, we never know for sure if a clergy person is in a state of sin or not. And that's why the Catholic Church has always taught that um, a priest is a conduit for God's grace. He's not the source of God's grace offered to a person. He's just a conduit. So even a, um, a pipe with corrosion on the inside can still pass some water. So... If we think of a priest as like a corroded pipe, 
we can understand that God's grace can still be communicated to us through even a priest that is not in a state of grace. Uh, and we don't have to worry then about whether our priest is in a state of sin or not, because it's God's grace that's working on us, not the priest. And who would have thought that a man who restores cars would use an analogy of a corroded pipe? I, I love that. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we get cars in here with corroded pipes sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you're definitely talking from experience. Yeah, yeah good analogy, though. I, I like it. Yeah. Yeah, you open up an engine, you might find all kinds of funky things in there. Um, <laughs> And then, of course, if we move on to the Middle Ages, you know, then we'll find that uh, there were different versions of Christianity being taught uh, because, you know, heretical groups come and go, but there's always heretical groups. And the Catholic Church, you know, they didn't just, you know, find these heretics and then put them to death. You know, if somebody was accused of heresy, they would have a trial where only people that were not hostile to that person could give testimony. And then uh, if a person was found to have taught heresy and they admit to teaching that heresy, then the Inquisition would try to teach them why the Catholic Church teaches this and what the Catholic Church teaches and would try to convince them to return to the correct teaching. And then if they did not, then the Catholic Church would turn them over to the state where the state would put them to death because to not hold the religion of the, the king or the prince was considered treason by the state because the authority of the state came from the blessing of the church. So if you didn't agree with your king, you didn't agree with the church, then you were treasonous toward your kingdom. And, you know, people would be put to death for that. And then after the Protestant Reformation, uh, you know, Catholics and Protestants would be put to death if they didn't agree with the church of the state that they lived in. And uh, the Protestants and the Catholics both held inquisitions as to who actually held the faith of the church and the state that they lived in. And uh, Catholics were put to death by Protestants, and Protestants were put to death by Catholics. Um, but the Church of England, in their efforts to demonize the Catholics, um, you know, really overhyped the Inquisitions by the Catholic Church, and a lot of bad press has come out since then. It's But it's all fake news. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's all part of that uh, no popery history that we inherited from England, um, because, uh, like you said, uh, secular courts. I mean, this was uh, run-of-the-mill stuff in secular courts in Protestant countries, and like you said, it, uh, you know, there are Catholics that are martyred by Protestants uh, through the state, and there are Protestants who are martyred. By Protestants through the state as well. You know, it all depends on uh, once uh, Christendom becomes fractured. You know, it, it all depends on who's the sovereign ruler. But uh, yeah, very good. Uh, I think we might have time for a quick, 
objection and answer. Okay. Well, here's a, a real quick one from uh, my friend Kashif over in Pakistan. Uh, and the Muslims there were saying that, you know, the Christians are going against what their God teaches by when the Israelites, you know, stole the goods from the Egyptians and the Ten Commandments say you're not supposed to steal from other people. Um, but if we actually look what is recorded in the Bible, uh, in Exodus chapter 12, when the, after the ten plagues had swept through Egypt, you know, the Egyptians were finally ready to give up. And so they told the Israelites, you know, take whatever you want and just leave. So it's not like the Israelites stole from the Egyptians. The Egyptians told them, take what you want and go. And then we can avoid all those plagues that you've been sending on us then. So the Israelites were not going against God's Ten Commandments by taking the spoils from Egypt. Uh, and just for the record, God hadn't given the Ten Commandments yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah, good That's point. later on in Exodus. Right. Yeah, good point. Yeah, it's uh, yeah they they were given the bumped rush and a whole bunch of parting gifts, you know, basically right. from Egypt. Well, uh, Ken, you know we have a, a minute or so left, and we've already kind of plugged your essays and getting a hold of you. So why don't you tell us about the email and what you can send people if they want it? Right. Okay. So uh, my email address is kenlitchfield sixty one at gmail dot com. And you can send me an email there, and I'll send you a copy of uh, about 250 essays now um, on different aspects of the Catholic faith and how to defend it. Um, I have a history of the Bible. You know, there's three different lengths on that, depending on how much detail you want. And uh, uh, nice. infant baptism, we'll cover that. Baptism, uh, the Eucharist. Tons of information, more than you can read in the day. Yeah. And what's the email address again? Ken Litchfield 61 at gmail.com. Excellent. Yeah, I love it. It's great information, a lot of information, and best of all, it's free of charge. So, <laughs> but yeah, you know, do yourself a favor, folks. Pick up his book, How, to, uh, How Old Is Your Church? And, uh, you know, use this information and use him as a resource. So, Ken, thank you so much for coming on the show. We truly appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Gary. Look forward to being on again. All right. Take care. That's Ken Litchfield, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. The hour's flowing. Coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. High Impact Talk indeed. And it's time for me to shut down the Midwest Command Center, turn off the dojo lights. Thank you for tuning in. God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Do this thing we call hands on the Bye bye.